Come on, City Life's got talent. City Life's got some talent. Thank you, Matt, for blessing us with that. Um, thank you, Corey, for getting my podium. Appreciate you, bro. But it's good to be back. Uh, Steph and I were gone for a couple weeks. I heard how amazing those weeks were. I heard Toby Cavanaugh's word. I've only been able to catch a little bit of it. Was phenomenal two weekends ago. That missionary from China who spoke to us. I heard Anthony's sermon was phenomenal. So it's good to be back myself worshiping with you all. Thank you, Stephanie Birch, as well, for the word she brought. It's just been a powerful night of worship, and I just hope and pray that God's word will continue to speak with us and leave something for us. But we're going to start tonight a, a two-week series. We're simply going to call The Thrill of Hope, Two Waiting Women's Rejoicing. And we're looking at Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at Elizabeth tonight. We're going to look at Mary next week. And, and uh, there's no real segue for this, but two women that had been waiting for their child to arrive. Uh, while we were gone, uh, Kelsey had Ainsley, beautiful girl I met this week. Emily, come on, had Henry. She's holding him right there. So we're growing the church person by person, literally. But it's going to be Raj's first Christmas this year. Uh, we adopted him in February, so it's his first time out of the orphanage in American culture, seeing stuff like this. Last night, my parents had him. They took him out to, like, 43rd Street off Virginia Beach, where it was just every house had lights on it. They said he went wild, was just jibber-jabbering, talking nonsense, freaking out, because he's never seen anything like that before. I can remember when we put our tree up, he walked in there for the first time, and you could just tell he was like, whoa. Just stood there, right? He's a ball of energy, but just stood there for like 30 seconds just looking at it before he started pulling on it, and you're like, maybe this tree will fall on my son, but so is Christmas with a toddler. But as, <laughs> as, we, as I experience Christmas with him, I begin to just reflect on how different Christmas can be as a child and how different Christmas can be as an adult. Because as a child, you have a Christmas list full of toys that you looked for with expectancy. As an adult, you have a to-do list full of tasks that you, you kind of avoid, right? The stress-free excitement kind of meets the stress-inducing rush of the holidays, and sometimes Christmas can sneak up on you. You know, Christmas as a, as a boy, I could borrow cash from my dad to buy that present from mom. Some of us, we're in a, a place where we're strapped. We got to borrow credit just to buy presents for all the people we're supposed to buy presents for. As a kid, you couldn't sleep on Christmas Eve because you were so excited. As a parent, you can't sleep on Christmas Eve because you got to wait for them all to go to bed, put the presents under the tree, all that jazz while nobody can see, right? And then Christmas morning, because of that excitement as a kid, I would sprint to the tree, start shaking the presents. I'd wake up at, you know, a regular hour every other day, but Christmas morning as a kid, something happens where you're waking up at like 4.30, 5 o'clock. Your parents are like, shut up and go to bed, but you're down there at the tree shaking gifts. As an adult... You're running to get coffee before anything, right? Coffee before Christmas. But I, I said it before. I don't typically start playing Christmas music like before Thanksgiving. Some of you crazies, you're doing that in like October, as soon as Halloween is over. Breaking out the Christmas music, getting in the spirit. That's not to say I don't have any Christmas spirit, but usually it's a couple weeks before Christmas when I really start uh, listening to the music, dialing in those last couple gifts. Thank God for Amazon. <laughs> because life, right? But Steph's love language, it's always good to know your spouse's love language. Steph's love language is giving gifts. So my birthday's in July. So, so as soon as, like, my birthday is over, she's already like, all right, what do you want for Christmas? I'm like, I just, all these wants and needs, I, just, I got gifts for them. And she's like, well, what do you want for Christmas now? Because that's her love language. She wants to buy me something. She wants to give me a gift. But, man, as a kid, 
You've got no, your list of things you want is never exhausted. Every, every weekend, Saturday morning cartoons, there's some new toy that's being advertised. Uh, there's some new shoes that just came out. Like, as a kid, it's not a struggle. And as a kid, usually, I would give my mind to Christmas in August, July, again, anticipating that list I had, those things that I was looking forward to, and I would count off the weeks, I would count off the months. And what I realized is that as kids, we tap into something we see in Scripture concerning the first Christmas, a major theme in Scripture leading up to that first Christmas, and it's quite simply waiting. You know, when, when you fire up your Christmas music, again, some of you crazies doing that in October, it doesn't take long to get to the song, Oh Holy Night. And then the first verse, it says, long lay the earth in sin and error pining. Now, pining isn't a word uh, that you probably use in your everyday vocabulary. You might have never said the word pining before. Pining, to me, kind of sounds a little Christmassy. You're going to get your pine tree set up in the living room. Kids, we're going to go pining, get in the station wagon, we're going to go get the Christmas tree. But that's not what it means. You look in the dictionary what pining means, and it's defined in a couple similar ways. It can mean to yearn deeply. It can mean to long painfully. And you might ask, well, why was... Why was the waiting painful for the world? But, you know, we set up our nativity scenes. We set ours up high this year, so Raj couldn't break it. But we set up those nativity scenes, and we look back some 20 centuries to Christ's birth that already happened. It's fact. But for centuries and generations leading up to Christ's birth, God's people were waiting. For many generations, there were Jews that weren't waiting for the arrival of Santa Claus. They were waiting for the arrival of a deliverer, of a Messiah, somebody that would restore them. They weren't waiting in some cushy waiting room with couches and coffee. They were waiting in exile. Jerusalem had fallen in 587 B.C., and the Jews were forced from their destroyed home in Jerusalem into exile. The prophets had warned them generation after generation, man, turn from your sin, return to God again, he'll welcome you back. But, man, they didn't just continue in sin, they celebrated sin, and finally Jesus took them into exile knowing that would wake them up to their condition. You know, my personal favorite Christmas song is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I don't know why, it's just my favorite. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And I think it's because every one of us, and I know myself, there was a time in my life where I was captive to sin, where I was exiled from God, where I needed deliverance. And Jesus Christ, for me, come on, he gave me that deliverance. But for me, he's he's already appeared. Christmas happened. Christmas for us, this celebration of of Emmanuel who has come already, God with us, it's it's an annual certainty. I mean, it could be a daily certainty as we open our word and read about it. But again, for generations and generations, Israel and the Jews would wait generation after generation to see this Messiah's fulfillment happen. You know, all we have to do in our Bibles to get to Jesus is turn that one page between Malachi and we're in Matthew. And voila, there's Jesus, right? The coming of the Messiah. It's right there in our Bibles. We have to remember that the gap between Malachi and the prophetic words that he was delivering and and to the coming of Christ, it was nearly 500 years. This gap, it's called the intertestamental period. The prophet Amos spoke of this time that would follow Malachi as famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And generation after generation passed in this time waiting for the Messiah, and he wouldn't come for so many of them. How many people abandoned hope? We don't know. We just know that for centuries this prophecy was unfulfilled. 
How many individuals stayed faithful to God's commands and his promises and the instruction that had been given to Abraham and Moses and never saw the Messiah come? We don't know. But it's so easy for us to remain enchanted by Christmas because it comes every year. But can you imagine the pull toward disenchantment as these people waited for the Messiah generation after generation, century after century, and yet he hadn't come? You know, I think in life sometimes we can feel this pull, this pull towards disenchantment. When we've been waiting for something in our life, and sometimes waiting feels like wasting. So then disenchantment creeps in, and then doubt's usually not far behind. And let me tell you tonight, that's okay. People in the Bible experience that. People in this room experience that. And Christmas is for you. Christmas is for those seasons. Because you wouldn't put this word to it, but you're pining. You're yearning deeply. You're longing painfully. And tonight I want to tell you again, Christmas is for you if you're pining. Because it says in O Holy Night, this thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. What hope? Well, I want to look at Luke chapter 1 these next two weeks to look at two waiting women's rejoicing. And tonight we're going to look at Elizabeth. Her very name means God's promise. So even just her name, as we begin the story, we realize that God is going to tell us something about his promises and how we pine for his promises. And sometimes his promises that once seemed so pregnant begin to feel a little barren. It says in Luke chapter 1, verses 36 through 37, this is the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. And he says, did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son, old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and here she is six months pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. I want to read a couple passages. I want to read a passage that starts in verse 5 and then a passage that starts in verse 23, both in Luke chapter 1, both dealing with Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah. It says in verse 5, when Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah. He was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife, Elizabeth, was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth, Elizabeth was unable to conceive, and they were both very old. But then we get this story of Gabriel visiting Zechariah in the temple saying, hey, you're going to have a child. This child will be John the Baptist that will prepare the way for Jesus. And then it says in verse 23, when Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home. And soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months. How kind the Lord is, she exclaimed. He has taken away my disgrace of having no children. Again, it would say in verses 36 and through 7, Did you know that your cousin Elizabeth conceived a son as old as she is? Everyone called her barren, and yet here she is six months pregnant. Nothing you see is impossible with God. And I love that phrase you see that's thrown in there, God. I just pray that what we see, God, our circumstances, God, we wouldn't project them on you and your heart and what you're capable of. Remind us tonight that nothing is impossible with God. God, that our hope is never truly extinguished because of the gift of Christmas that is Jesus Christ. I pray that you would shift perspectives and ways of thinking and ways that we see you to align with your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I, when I was a kid, uh, bald eagles were about to go the, the way of the dodo bird. The national symbol was, was on the brink of extinction. They were an endangered species when I was in grade school and, and coming up. And when we adopted the eagle as a national symbol, there were a quarter million in North America. And when I was coming up, there were only 400 left. Right, so they were, they were on the verge of extinction. They were an endangered species, and, and they just got filed away in my brain as such. Like, bald eagles, 
endangered. Bald eagles, super rare. Like, there's only a couple on the planet. So fast forward over a decade. I'm in my 20s. I'm working in Williamsburg. I'm living in Newport News. So there's that daily commute down 64. And I remember driving uh, 64. I'm getting to Williamsburg. I'm going over some water. And I look up, and there's like a bird. Looks like an eagle with a white head. And I'm like, can't be. Can't be a bald eagle. And I'm freaking out. Like, you would have thought I just saw a pterodactyl. I'm like driving. I'm looking up in the sky probably recklessly because I'm like, I can't believe this. And maybe you're looking at me like I'm dumb. And that's the look I got from my coworkers when I showed up to work and was like, I saw a bald eagle. Like, it was front page news. Because... You probably know what my coworkers know that that bald eagles were taken off the endangered species list in the late 90s. They've since rebounded, right? They're they're around here. But in my life, I missed that memo entirely, right? I was still operating from this perspective that there were only a few left on the planet, and to see one would have been mind-boggling, right? See, in thinking that they were nearly extinct, I was operating from an expired perspective. We see a similar case with Elizabeth, where people called her barren. But they were operating from this old perspective that was no longer accurate. It says in this passage that we read that she went into seclusion for the five, first five months of pregnancy. We don't really know why she did this. This wasn't like a cultural norm. But, man, I just like to believe that it was such a miracle, so precious to her, what God had done in her life with Zechariah that they just wanted to cherish it in privacy for five months. It's kind of foreign to us in a culture where, man, something happens, we want to celebrate. We throw it on social media so we can get that dopamine rush of likes and comments. But, man, I believe she's... She just wanted to do this and and step into seclusion. And so she, again, was in seclusion up to her sixth month. So I bet there were people around that still referred to her and thought of her as barren. Meanwhile, she's growing a child in her womb as they were saying that. That was an expired perspective. And when I read Luke 1, verse 36, I'm challenged each time. What perspectives are in my life that aren't really accurate. What am I calling barren that God would call blessed? What do I see as expired or extinct that God still has expectation for? What have I given up hope for that God is still thrilled by hope to see happen in my life? Is it like the, the, the people I, I come across each day, coworkers? Is it, is it those people that barista I've invited and talked to Jesus about 40 times at Starbucks? I've seen no fruit. Is it a little more personal? Is it, is it that, that family member that we've just been praying for and believing for, but we've seen nothing? Is it something a little more personal in our heart? Is it a, is it a, a bad habit, an addiction, brokenness in our life that we're just waiting for deliverance from? Or then is it something, is it hopes, is it dreams, is it purposes that we b- believe that God gave us that we just haven't seen anything happen with? You know, Elizabeth no doubt had a dream of motherhood. But she was, as it says in Scripture, well advanced in years. Basically saying that dream was extinct. It was too over. It was over. It was too late. You know, this idea of barrenness, if you read your Bible from cover to cover, you see it again and again in the Old Testament. You see old women whose prospects of having children had seemingly gone from endangered to extinct, and yet we see it, God moving on their behalf. Sarah and Abraham, Rachel and Jacob, Manoah and his wife, the parents of Samson, Hannah and Elkanah and the Shunammite woman and her husband. Again and again, these women who suffered from barrenness, God moving in their life and them having sons and children. So people that were familiar with this history would have seen this happening in her life, in Elizabeth's life, and thought, man, God is moving again. It's been a while, but it's been these centuries. It's been, it's been a while, but hey, God is he's moving again. But you know, we read that story, and that's the view from the air. 
right? That's the historical view. It's the, the synopsis based on our testaments. But man, when you're on the ground, you're Elizabeth and Zechariah. You're suffering from barrenness. That's not just something you read over. You only consider for a moment before moving on. You know, that hits home when you walk through it, this inability to have kids. I mean, it, it gives us private shame even today, but then it was a public shame. They didn't have doctors in medicine. If, if a couple couldn't have kids, it was the woman's fault. They carry the children. And women at that time had such a, a, a horrible ceiling on their life to where if they couldn't bear kids and bring up that next generation, what were they good for, right? Elizabeth talks about this, uh, this barrenness as a disgrace. It's her disgrace among her people in verse 25. This word disgrace, it's not something we should read over quickly either because this word dis is a prefix. It means to tear away, to utterly take apart. It's used to indicate a negative reversing force. So when you, when you struggle with disenchantment, you've lost enchantment. When you struggle with discouragement, you've lost courage. When you struggle with, with being disheartened, means you've lost heart. This idea of disgrace would say that you've been cut off from God's grace. You've lost God's grace. You've lost his love. You've lost his favor. You're unable to have kids. That must be some punishment from God. It must be disgrace. And we see this twisted line of thinking in John chapter 9. The disciples see the man who was born blind and say, who sinned? This guy or his parents? That he would be disgraced like this. But we see something powerful in the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah that I love. It says they were blameless. You get somebody to investigate their lives, they weren't going to find dirt. They were doing it right. There were no skeletons in their closet. It says that they, they walked in all the statutes of the Lord, all his regulations. They were acting on traditions and habits and promises that had been given to the Israelites thousands of years earlier to Abraham and Moses. And somebody could have walked up to them and asked them, how's that working out for you? Well, we're still waiting on the Messiah as a nation and as a couple we're bearing. We often see in Scripture that what we see is disgraced in the moment is often designated for a later, greater plan. I don't know what it is in your life, but sometimes those things that are barren, God wants to call blessed, but we're just in a season of waiting, and he's asking us not to give up hope. Again, they were operating from promises and commands given to Abraham and Moses years and years and years prior, seeing no fruit for their faithfulness. You ever think they thought, maybe we should just walk away? Throwing in the towel. All these promises, all these commands, we're following them faithfully. We're not seeing the fruit we want to see. Maybe this is a fool's errand. Do you ever feel that way about following Christ? Because we operate from promises and commands that weren't thousands of years, excuse me, they weren't from Abraham and Moses, but they're still thousands of years ago from Jesus Christ. And sometimes we follow them, we obey them, and we don't see the fruit we want to see. And let me be churchy, or let me not be churchy, but let me be forthright and honest. Some of you maybe are coming off a banner year, but some of you maybe are coming off a barren year where you're here. You're like, God, you need to come through, or I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw in the towel. You're struggling with doubt. And again, we, we all will be there at some point in life because there's always going to be those, those, those times in life where God seems absent, inactive. We begin to ask questions like, why am I, why am I serving? Why am I obeying? Why am I sacrificing? Why am I living as if there's something to this when every circumstance says I'm just living a myth or a superstition? What am I getting out of this? Where is this going? These questions that rattle through our brain because of discouragement, disenchantment, and doubt. And we will come across these seasons in life. But it's why we have hope. 
Because there will be voices in your, said, in your head that will say, even if there is a God, clearly he's abandoned you. You're living a life of disgrace. You're separated from his grace. You're not seeing what you're looking for. Again, sometimes waiting can begin to feel like wasting. But again, if that's you, the Christmas story is for you. Because to say that God had disgraced Elizabeth or had completely abandoned Elizabeth, we realize reading scripture that based on circumstance might have seemed the case. But you couldn't have been more wrong about what God was doing in her life and in that history. Your weight is never wasted. The promises that we wait on, they're never wasted on us. Never extinct, never barren. It says in Isaiah 41, 19, I love uh, Stephanie hit on a verse that says something very similar. I will plant trees where? In the barren desert. In Isaiah 6, God speaks to Israel's coming judgment. Again, they were going to be sent into exile. And Isaiah was another prophet that was coming to warn them that they wouldn't listen to. But it talks about how they would be struck down. Their whole country would be a wasteland, cut down by the enemy, carried into exile. Yet Isaiah 6, I love it, ends with these powerful, potent few words. It says, Israel's stump will be a holy seed. The stump that is a seed, the stump that looks dead, if it's rooted in God, there's hope. Isaiah uses this same imagery in Isaiah chapter 11 to point to the coming Messiah, to point to Jesus Christ. We may not read it as a Christmas verse during the year, but in Isaiah 11, it says, out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root. The stump that looks dead but is a seed, it bears fruit. What seemed forsaken will bear fruit again. Again, it's speaking to this nation of Israel that, man, they're in exile for so long. They must feel completely forsaken and disgraced. And yet God was saying, hey, you're going to taste grace again. And maybe that's you this year. You've blown it. Maybe in little ways, maybe in big ways. You've been cut by conviction. But let me tell you, that can be a good thing. The same way you prune back the growth on a plant so that it can grow even more, sometimes conviction does that for us. Because conviction tells us, hey, you've done something wrong. But you know what? Shame can creep in. Shame says you are wrong. That's the difference. Shame and doubt, discouragement can creep in, and we can feel forsaken. We can feel disgraced, cut off from the grace of God. Yet God would say, you're never past my grace. And it's not because of of, of New Year's is coming. We get to set up hoops and try to do better and, and do better in this area or that area to try to measure up to the grace of God. No, it's because of the unmerited favor of God through Jesus Christ, the grace and mercy that flows through his blood that we can have this thrill of hope, not based on anything we do. You know, I worked, this was before my other job in Williamsburg, I worked at a garden center in Virginia Beach, super manly job, I know all about flowers. There's annuals, there's perennials. Annuals, you plant them, they'll die. Don't expect to see them again. But perennials, you can plant a perennial, and then you cut it back at the end of the year. And you might leave some stumps. There might be nothing that you see through all the winter. Just looks like a patch of dirt, nothing there. Whatever was there is dead. And yet you can bet that when you plant a perennial, that next spring, it'll come shooting up again. Again, we can have this perennial thrill of hope because of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ said, it is finished from the cross, means nobody else can speak over your life that it is finished. When Jesus Christ from the cross said, hey, it's over, and dropped the mic, that means nobody can speak over your life, it's over. You've been disgraced. You've been forsaken. Because of the cross, we can still bear fruit, even in those seasons. The stump can grow a shoot. 
What's barren can be blessed. Nothing is impossible with God. But this whole suffering servant dying on a cross, it's not the Messiah that many were looking for for centuries. Confused many of them that this Messiah would come and not deliver them from Roman oppression, but actually die on a cross. In the same way, not many people were expecting this Messiah to show up in a dirty manger as a six-pound, seven-pound, whatever-ounce baby, right, in a feeding trough next to animals. Nobody expected that. But I love that Stephanie hit on it tonight. There's a danger in hoping and expecting God to move exactly how and exactly when we would like. To be honest, it's kind of dumb. She mentioned the verse from Romans. She mentioned a verse from Isaiah. There's another verse in Isaiah that says, God says, man, my ways are as high above your ways as the heavens are from the earth. My ways are higher than your ways. Your, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Would it really surprise us that he would do something outside of our box? It shouldn't, but it's undeniable. It's undeniable that there's this discomfort in not being able to choose how God moves on our behalf. We can't dictate the means, but we can hold on to hope. Hebrews 11 speaks to faith as being certain of what we hope for. Christmas reminds us that our hope isn't in vain. And Elizabeth reminds us that what seems barren can still be blessed, for nothing is impossible with God. But you begin to reflect on this, and I'm studying this week, and man, the question arises, well, what about the people who don't see the hope fulfilled? Again, what about those Israelites who for generations stayed faithful to a T and yet didn't see the Messiah come to deliver them? And then you fast forward to here and now. What about people today who need healing, who are barren, haven't had kids, who toil, pray, try, and they never see kids? They never see the healing. They never see the deliverance. What about them? Hebrews 11, it starts I love Hebrews 11. It's called the Hall of Faith. It starts with these accounts of these people who did mighty deeds through their faith. They saw victories. They saw healings. Well, actually, there are none that list healing. It's very interesting to me. But they see triumphs. They see deliverance from persecution, victory over their enemies. That's most of Hebrews 11. But then you get to the end where people didn't see deliverance and victory in this life, but it still says in Hebrews 11 that they have faith. And it says at the end of Hebrews 11, not one of these people even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. You know, I've always read that passage and assumed that that was speaking to the ones who suffered, the ones who didn't get freed from persecutions, that they were the ones who didn't receive what was promised. They didn't get the healing. They didn't regain their freedom. They didn't get the promise of victory over enemies, material blessings. They didn't experience the comforts of this life. They didn't get their hands on this promise. But then when you really break down Hebrews 11, that verse is speaking to all of Hebrews 11. Not one of these people got their hands on what was promised. Sure, they got their hands on some of the promises of God, but they never tasted of the eternal inheritance known through the new covenant established through Jesus Christ. None of them listed in Hebrews 11 experienced Jesus. So whether 2017 feels more like a banner year or it felt like a barren year, you feel like 2017 for you was from the first half of Hebrews, where you saw victories and triumphs, you saw God move, or maybe it feels more like it's from the second half of Hebrews. You suffered. You didn't see what you would hope for. But guess what? We still have Jesus. We've received the promise, the promise that was given at Christmas. But we live in this, <laughs> this Hollywood era. Ironically, I went to see Star Wars this week. I go to the movies. I love it, right? But we live in a Hollywood era. We want the highlight reel. We live in this Western culture. We, we want the tangible, material assets. 
But let me tell you, our hope isn't in prosperity. Our hope isn't in ease. Our hope isn't in comfort. Our hope is in a person. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. If you place your hope and faith in, in prosperity or a prosperity gospel, it will crumble under the rocks of reality. There's one supreme need, one greatest gift, and that's Jesus Christ, a person, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, like our parents, or maybe your parents, and again, you wait for the kids to go to bed, and then you slide the gifts under the tree. It's the same way with Jesus. The greatest gift came in the dark hours of night. Even in the dark hours, even when it seems God is quiet and there's seeming silence, God is, God is active. Again, we, we sing, yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. For us, that morn has come. Christmas has happened. But now we, we wait for the ultimate restoration. We wait for the ultimate healing when Jesus comes again. We will wait. We don't determine when yonder is. right? But we get to cling to the thrill of hope because we know that through Jesus Christ we hold the hope of heaven and that our waiting is never truly wasted. Come on, don't give up your expectation just because something feels endangered. God can bless what is seemingly barren. And if I could have the, the worship team come up tonight. You know, I quoted a lot from Isaiah, but, man, you could argue Isaiah 40 is probably the most quoted verse in Isaiah. It's at least the most used on, on mugs, mouse pads, desktop backgrounds on our computers, right, where it speaks to God giving us strength like an eagle. So often we'll see with this verse an image of a bald eagle soaring or a bald eagle just flying among the clouds. We get these pictures with this verse. And we realize that when we feel beaten to the point of being endangered, to the point of seeming nearly extinct, that God meets us there. It says in Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31, this is the amplified version, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't become tired or grow weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who has no might, he increases power. Even youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly. But those who wait for the Lord, who expect, look for, and hope in him, will gain new strength and renew their power. They will lift up their wings and rise up close to God like eagles rising toward the sun. They will run and not become weary. They will walk and not grow tired. So I don't know what you've been waiting for, that maybe you haven't seen the fruit you wanted, whether it's a solution or resolution, whether it's some provision or deliverance or healing. But Isaiah 40 reminds us, whatever you're waiting for, whatever this laundry list is, there is one primary thing we should wait for. We should wait on the Lord. And maybe you close out this year so focused on the things you've waited on and haven't seen that you've forgotten to wait on the one who is unseen. That's why you feel weak, tired, endangered. Because when you focus on what you're waiting for and forget to focus on the one who we're called to wait for, that's when self-doubt, comparison, disenchantment, these things can creep in that try to steal our hope, try to steal our faith. You know, I love that Elizabeth and her husband, they weren't just waiting twiddling their thumbs, asking why. They waited well, because in their waiting, they waited on the Lord. He served God. They served God. They sought him with their lives. And man, scripture tells us, you seek, you'll find. Draw near, he'll draw near to you. The very coming of Christ speaks to Emmanuel, God with us. We may be sitting in a waiting room, but Emmanuel says, hey, I'm gonna pull up a chair and wait with you. We might not be able to decide when we leave that waiting room, 
But as we sit there, God says, man, invite me in. I want to be with you even in the waiting, where you can experience me, even in the darkest hour, God with us. Again, I don't know if 2017 was what you would call a banner year or it's more on the the level of a barren year. But Christmas reminds us, man, God is still active. Reminds us his promises are yes and amen. That they were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. God with us, even in the waiting. So as we step into worship, we're going to sing, Oh, Come to the Altar. That's a physical, literal invitation tonight. If you're waiting on God, man, we're not called to just twiddle our thumbs and wait. We're called to seek him. We're called to invite him into our waiting. So maybe tonight you need to get out of your pew, come up here at the altar. Maybe tonight you simply need to come and ask for a prayer, whether it's Anthony in the back, me right here. But let's use this time of worship to say to God, we're waiting for this, that, and the third, God, but we want to, in Isaiah 40, it talks about waiting on you. God, I pray that tonight you would provide strength. God, I pray that tonight you would, you would restore faith, you would restore hope, you would restore encouragement. Where there's been disenchantment, you would remove the dis, and we would be given enchantment and faith and hope again. Where there's been discouragement, God, you would remove the dis, and there would be courage again. God, we come to you again tonight. Maybe we've asked a hundred times for this to be removed or this to be provided, but tonight we simply come to you and ask, God, meet us here. Fill us with your spirit again. Remind us again of what Jesus Christ did, how because of his sacrifice on the cross, we can come boldly before your throne and step into your presence and ask, God, we wait on you. But we do that tonight. Come on, as we worship tonight, I ask you to stand to your feet. And again, if you need to step out of your pew, let's worship together here at the altar.